When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Kyle Coster Show. I'm Kyle Coster. My guest today is Liam McEwen, blogger at The Big Lead. He has a piece exploring the NFL draft from 2007 to 2017, looking at which collegiate conferences produced the most first-round picks and what those first round picks became in terms of busts, in terms of serviceable players, and in terms of star power. And his findings are a bit surprising and reveal that it's a bit more of a crapshoot than we even thought. So Liam, why don't you tell me a little bit about the project? So the project originated because me and the big leads editor-in-chief, Brian Jeffra, uh, were interested just in a general you know, thought exercise sense, what the breakdown would be of first round draft picks from each of the power five conferences in college football, but then specifically how well those guys did once they get into the league, because everybody likes to talk about how Alabama always has a truly obscene number of high draft picks and things of that nature, but how many of these guys actually panned out, actually contributed to their team. And then in the grander sense, first round picks, you want them to be stars. You want them to be on your team for anywhere from five to 10 years. You want them to contribute in a big way. You want them to be a key part of your team. That's why first round picks are so valuable. So how many of those guys actually ended up getting to that level? So what we did is we took every first round pick from 2007 to 2017, because we felt that uh, judging players after only three years in terms of ranking them a bust or a star was a little a little premature. There are some obvious ones in here, like we included Patrick Mahomes as a big star from the Big 12, because obviously, you know, no, no disputing that. We broke it down into whether they were a bust, which means that they just didn't live up to their draft slot or they washed out of the league. Anything you can think of, you know, sometimes a really high draft pick who ended up playing for four or five years is still a bust because you don't want four or five years of average play from a number two overall pick, for example whether they were a utility player where they had a solid career, might have bounced around the NFL. You know, you can consider that a win for the conference, but in terms of the team that drafted them, probably not what they were looking for. And then you have your stars, which we define as multi-time pro bowlers. So the first thing that I take away from this list, obviously, is the number one conference that's always discussed is the SEC, right? There is the sense of pride that, this is the conference that's developing the most NFL talent. But the question really is what conference is developing the best NFL talent, right? 
that's kind of where you figure out which conference should have the bragging rights and then which conference is kind of underappreciated or undervalued. And I think that what your research shows are a couple big takeaways. And number one, we were talking about this earlier, but it really shined a light on how quick and how poorly a lot of NFL careers go. So let's take the SEC for example. 99 first round picks, 44 you have termed as bust. In the Pac-12, 48 first round picks, 26 bust. That's over 50%. With the Big 10, the bust rate was 39%. With the Big 12, 44. And the ACC, 44 as well. So you're looking best case scenario, 40% of the players from every conference were deemed a bust and didn't live up to the hopes. And an even smaller number fulfilled those hopes with the teams that drafted them. So for all the great hope and hype after the draft, it's more likely than not that it's a coin flip situation. And even then you may be in the position of watching someone who never realized that potential with your team only to succeed later. So the draft really seems like the beginning of the story. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a good way to put it. It, you know, it really kind of, you hear all the time about how the NFL draft is a crapshoot. And as somebody who's outside the building, it's kind of hard to believe at times because these guys are pouring thousands, hundreds of thousands of man hours into evaluating every second of every piece of tape that is on every single one of these prospects. And this is just the first round picks. This is supposed to be, you know, the elite talent from every conference every year in college football in the draft. And it's still almost a coin flip as to far as insofar as whether or not they're even going to be in the league in like four or five years, much less contribute, much less contribute for your team. Setting the standard that it takes three, maybe that three and a half years in the NFL to really get a picture of what a player is going to be or wherever you want to draw that line. I think that that is reflective of how unpredictable things can be, right? If you can't plan what your team is going to look like past three years for half of the roster spots through the draft. But also maybe I keep trying to go back to understand and Ryan Russillo did a really good bit on his podcast about this, about the first round quarterbacks that were taken and what they became. And it seems like we've never had more information. There are these industrial arms of these franchises that they're doing their own arms race about trying to like win the information age and everybody has their own set standard of edge they're going to get over the other franchises. And yet these are the numbers we are seeing. So I'd be curious to know if we are getting better at all with this from the outside and if teams are getting better with their draft picks. Cause to me, this data, at least through the crop of NFL talent that we're able to make a decision on uh, what they're going to be, or if they're never going to be something aren't exactly doing that well. So what are we just spending a lot more time and energy at what is ultimately uh, a losing proposition or, or in baseball, like running into one. I mean, it's almost, it feels like it's a losing proposition just looking at the numbers and the statistics. But as everybody who doesn't like advanced statistics like to tell you, the numbers don't tell the whole story. And it feel, while it feels like a losing proposition when you're looking at a spreadsheet like this, 
the impact of those stars, the impact of those home run swings that you get on the first round is worth five busts or utility players, for example. Like getting, finding, I'm looking at the SEC page right now, and if you find a, a Patrick Willis or a Julio Jones in one draft or two drafts, and then you ended up with a Greg Robinson or a Felix Jones or a Glenn Dorsey in their next three, you still have these two superstar players who are foundational pieces for the program that helps you do what you were just talking about, where you plan out multiple years in advance. So it's, yes, I actually think it ultimately is putting a lot of time and effort into a losing proposition, but only because the successes are so meaningful that they have to do. But on the other side of that, it does seem like there could be some fool's gold because, you know, just in the SEC, like you mentioned, you have Jamarcus Russell, uh, listed that'll set your franchise back when you take a quarterback number two and you think that you're going to get five years of goodwill or you're going to be in a situation like the Packers where you only need to replace your starting guy every 16 years. The Pac-12, it's long been considered the worst of the Power Five conferences. Does this tell us that the Pac-12 is not preparing guys for the NFL, because even when you look at the stars out of the Pac-12, uh, in the in the there's 16 listed here, it is a pretty weak group with only a few really high-end talents coming from that conference. I think I'm not sure if it goes so far as to say about the preparation aspect. Because, well, actually, you know what? I think you are right. I think in terms of because if you're looking at this list in terms of skill position players, there are almost not. I think from that 20, 2007 to 2017 mark, you have Marshawn Lynch and Jonathan Stewart as your only real, like, legit studs from the Pac-12 as far as skill position goes, and Christian McCaffrey, of course. And then you have Andrew Luck as a quarterback, but the rest of these guys are linebackers or offensive linemen or defensive end, guys who are built in such a way, physically and athletically, that they would probably end up, you know, doing pretty well, if not better, if they had gone to another conference. So I think there's definitely an argument to be made there, but it also has to be taken into account with the talent pool that they have, because the reason the SEC has so many draft picks is because it's the SEC. There's a certain prestige that comes to it. They get the first crack at most of the uh, most of the really high end five star recruits coming out of high school, especially in that like general geographic range. You know what? I got something here to push a little bit back about that, because if you look at the Big Ten, it's rather similar. Yes, there is Melvin Gordon on is on this list, and Ezekiel Elliott is on that list. But that is largely uh, that's bereft of skill position talent, like in a way that's really kind of surprising. So when we think about college football, and I think even in the last three years, that maybe this trend will change a little bit with the Big Ten really opening up with some of those offenses it does seem like the style of play uh, is being reflected a little bit and carrying over from like the PAC 12 and the big 10 to the pros. Well, 100%. I mean, you think about, you know, the big 10 or even the sec and it's all about winning in the trenches. They have these absolute monster athletes on the offensive and defensive line. And those are the athletes who usually end up going on to succeed in the NFL because it's, you know, slightly more about, uh, your physical makeup at th those positions than it is about skill position players. So you look at the big 10 stars, there's like four or five offensive linemen on here, Ryan Ramchick, Jack Conklin, Taylor Luan, 
uh, Jake Long, Joe Thomas. And then in the SEC, you had 26 stars out of the 99 draft picks. And there are more a scattering of skill position players because you got an OBJ, you have a Mike Evans, you have an Amari Cooper. But then you have Fletcher Cox, you have Marquise Pouncey, you have Laramie Tunsil. When I was looking at this, it did confirm to an extent sort of my stereotypes of each conference in that when I think about, you know, Alabama and Auburn duking it out, I don't, you know, despite Alabama's recent run of success with extremely high quality wide receivers going high in the first and second round, I think of, you know, grinding it out, battling it out in the trenches and based on the talent that we see come into the NFL and then succeed in the NFL, it almost, it, it affirms that for me. All right, let's talk about the Big 12, uh, kind of the forgotten conference a lot of times. Uh, you know, they always struggled to get a playoff participant in. And what surprised me about this is that they had a really high hit rate on stars. Um, and, and I was curious, I do think that the small sample size helps a lot, but it does seem like there's some really elite high-end talent that came out of there and not just from Oklahoma. Well, yeah, break it down on the spreadsheet here. You got 45 total first round picks from the big 12 from 2007 to 2017. Out of those 45 picks, 15 of them ended up multi-time pro bowlers. That is a 33% hit rate, which is pretty nuts when you, especially when we were, we were just talking about the stereotypes and kind of like ideas that we have about each particular conference, the big 12, as you said, kind of forgotten, doesn't really, you know, the general public perception is that they don't produce a lot of quality NFL players, but looking at the statistics, there's actually a better chance that you end up finding a long-term contributor from the big 12 than you do almost any other conference. I believe the big 10 has a slightly higher hit rate in that regard, which is a different conversation in and of itself. But you have some legit names on here on top of it. You got Adrian Peterson, you have Patrick Mahomes, you have Von Miller, you have the Dominican Sioux. I mean, these are guys who have been main characters, as it were, for different reasons in the grand scheme of the NFL over the last decade. And they are all from the same conference. And as you noted, not all just from Oklahoma. You have Texas Tech, you have Nebraska. Obviously, sample size, as you mentioned, has something to do with it because they have half as many first round, less than half as many first round picks as the SEC does. But also the SEC only has 11 more stars, but they have 54 more draft picks. What did you think of the trend of NFL teams kind of creating buddy cop movies with their quarterback and collegiate wide receiver uh, reunited and how they were trying to bring those tandems together. Does it seem like they're trying to build an existing pipeline more than they used to? You look at what the Bengals did it. And I even know with um, the Patriots, I believe the Patriots were all in on two schools, right? Alabama and Oklahoma in this draft. Do you think that there's, they're leaning into continuity? And do you think that this is something that will grow uh, as we get further down the line in, in draft preparation? Well, I think that as the, I feel, you know, I don't have any statistical evidence to back this up like I have on the spreadsheet in front of me, but I feel like the talent pool gets deeper every year when it comes to college football. And so teams, because there's so many good players to see, I feel like teams are going to be more inclined to go back to the well that they know will, you know, definitely work out for them in some regard. And especially you talked about the Patriots is a lot about the trust and the relationship between the coaching staff at the college and the coaching staff at the pro level. 
Now, in terms of, you know, kind of like what the Bengals did with Jamar Chase and Joe Burrow, I'm sure that played a factor in it. But mostly, I think there is a certain continuity level, but I don't know how much teams are going to focus on it because the opportunity is so rarely there. The Patriots went Alabama two picks in a row, but Christian Barrymore, who was their second round pick, wasn't supposed to be at the top of the second round. He was supposed to go in the late first, but they got lucky and that happened. And there is a universe that exists in which the Falcons took Jamar Chase and the Bengals end up with Panay Sewell or Kyle Pitts. So I'm not sure if it is speaking to a larger trend, but I do think especially in this particular draft, with the relative lack of scouting that the teams were able to do that they definitely relied more upon, you know, I wouldn't go so far as to say is their minor league school, but they looked at their past drafts. They looked at what coaches from others from those schools told them about their draft picks and if it worked out and then factored that way more heavily into their decision-making than they would have normally as a consequence of the fact that they, for the large, for largely most of the season, they couldn't go see these guys in person. So when you take that into the longer view, I think, depending on how this draft class works out, they might end up leaning into that a lot because I think teams are almost afraid of doing that too much because, you know, you, you're looking at the numbers right here. If you pick all players from an SEC team and you have a slightly better than a quarter chance of them end up becoming a long-term contributor, slightly less than a third chance of them being solid for you and then a 45% chance, slightly less than half of it being a bust. So if you zero in and you don't expand your view, then that could be detrimental as much as it could be beneficial. What I think is going to be the trend, and you saw it in this draft, is the North Dakota State thing with Carson Wentz and with Trey Lance, right? I think the future of college football as a pipeline to the pros is going to be these smaller schools that effectively function as like IMG academies for a specific position. And I would expect the next starting quarterback from North Dakota State or the one after that to be a top pick in the NFL draft as well, because they've essentially laid the groundwork to being a pipeline for this. As players get more leverage and they start seeing college as a stepping stone to the NFL even more than they do, won't it be attractive for there to be some of these feeder schools that have existing relationships that are proven cultivation, like incubate, like Silicon Valley incubators for specific types of talent? I think so. I think that that concept of smaller schools that know that they can't flesh out a dominant roster and it'd be just because of, you know, the size of the school, the recruiting pool and all that, instead try to focus, you know, not say it out loud, you don't say the quiet part out loud, but basically becoming a pipeline for particular positions. I mean, there's no downside for them. Their team might not be overall as successful if they decide to go all in on recruiting some, you know, if somebody's like some tiny school, it's like, what? Uh, uh, so let's say, for example, that, you know, Central Michigan decides that honing offensive linemen after Eric Fisher was drafted number one overall uh, earlier in the decade is what they want to do. They might suffer a little bit in terms of their overall success rate, because if you go all in on certain recruits and that doesn't leave you the money or the time or the bandwidth to get after other guys. But on the upside, it means that NFL teams start to trust you as your own personal recommendations, which comes or trust your own personal recommendations, which comes with added benefit in the industry as a whole that, you know, Everybody knows that this team likes your school for this particular player. There's a, and that helps you recruit more people. 
And then on top of that, you also have a selling point for the players who aren't going to be on the team and to the boosters. Like, hey, we had this guy go really high in the draft and he's the superstar and the people will come see this guy because he's going to be in the NFL. And you can just pick whatever school you want or whatever position you want, like North Dakota State. North Dakota State is a little different in this particular hypothetical because of the fact that having a dominant quarterback can cover so many other problems on a team. But even if North Dakota State sucked with Trey Lance, which they didn't, then they still have Trey Lance, the guy who went number three overall, the guy whose face will be plastered next to Carson Wentz's all over the school for the rest of time. There's really not a downside to it other than the whole you know, competitive aspect and competitive nature of instead of trying to put the best team together, you just go after the good players with the long-term in mind. Well, I would be remiss if we're going to be talking about Central Michigan University as a pipeline for offensive lineman talent. If I didn't give a shout out to Adam Kieft, who used to go to my church, uh, had a stint with the Cincinnati Bengals. And for a while, I mean, J.J. Watt, Central Michigan, Central got pretty good at that specific type of really large offensive line slash tackle bodies shout out to the Chippewas fire up chips is there anything about this list that we didn't touch on yet that surprised you I did think it was a little surprising that the Pac-12 stood out so much in terms of the bust rate because even you know you want to talk about quality of football and you know quality of competition stuff like that the Pac-12 is probably a step below all the other schools on this list. But regardless, there's still NFL talent that goes there, and they're considered one of the Power Five conferences. And then so to see that they had 48 first-round picks in that 10-year time span, and then they had 26 busts, which is over 50% of them, kind of blows my mind a little bit. Like, in just in, you know, when you compare that statistically to everybody else, like, how does that happen? Is it like we were talking about before that they aren't preparing their guys adequately? Is it really just this entire thing is luck and they just got unlucky that they ended up with Josh Rosen sitting in their conference instead of Kyler Murray? I mean, I I just don't know. I just thought that that was a really interesting aspect because everybody else is under 50% and some of them are really under 50%. Like, uh, well, really just the Big Ten only has 39% uh, bust rate in the time span that we chose. And yeah, I don't know. That's that's that 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 stood out to me. And now let's pause to make some money. C's. Where are the C's? Well, it was fucking. <laughs> I mean, it was just an. I, I cannot believe this actually happened in real life, but. The last five minutes of the Portland Trailblazers game was just horrible in every single respect. First, they get a bad goaltending call, which was then not overturned, which was crazy. But that's, you know, one thing. But then that was in the middle of a run where we had a bunch of momentum. And then we come back the other way. Marcus Smart gets ejected because it looked like he swung his arm up in the Yusuf Nurkic's sensitive areas, which it kind of looked like he did. But he still only received a technical and then was ejected anyway. And they didn't really provide a clarification on that. And then not two minutes after that, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown slam into each other, hit their ankles together, and they both limp off the court. It was the worst five minutes of a basketball game I have ever watched in terms of how my fortunes turned for the worst for my team. It was, I couldn't believe it when like Brown was cursing and had to be helped off the floor and Tatum slowly hobbled off the floor. 
Unfortunately, that was two days ago. We haven't gotten any Adrian Wojnarowski or Shams leaks about, you know, somebody being out for the season, knock on wood, that would be really bad. But it's like this after, you know, it's like everybody's gone through it and I'm not trying to be, you know, Celtics victim complex guy, but the Celtics really have had everybody hurt at different times, literally all season. And then it's just the perfect culmination of all of that, that whole aspect when your two star players run into each other and get maybe seriously hurt. It'd be like if LeBron and Anthony Davis missed all their time because they bang knees together or something. It's like, what, how could, how, how can any team be that unlucky that their two most important players smack together and hurt the, each other? That seems so, so impossible. You know, I know that no Celtics fan ever wants to hear this, but it does kind of feel on a much smaller scale like there's some comparison with the Lakers in this, right? Because I trust the healthy Celtics in the playoffs a lot more than I trust almost every team in the Eastern conference. Uh, and I mean, I think Brooklyn has the highest ceiling, obviously, but I mean, it can go horribly wrong for them. I'm putting the Celtics up there as a contender if they can get in the playoffs and they can avoid the play in game, because if they have, their full complement, right? They have the history. They have two solid stars who have proven it in the playoffs before, but it's just a matter of avoiding this play-in tournament, which I think we all kind of understand that it's added an element of insecurity among the teams, not trying to make the playoffs because it's been easier to say, hey, we got a shot. We're not any good anyway. We'll call that like the Detroit Pistons zone of the last six years, right? Like we, we are fighting to get swept. Um, and there's a lot of teams that can, you know, but they can say, hey, we made the playoffs. We competed. But it's really caused a lot of insecurity for teams like the Celtics, which have been snake bitten all year, but also have not taken the next step for a variety of reasons uh even you know they're falling behind by 30 and needing to say hey jason tatum can you be god here for an hour and thank you it does feel like avoiding the play-in tournament is like the biggest thing for this team are you concerned about having to be in it because it looks like it's a one game edge right now uh from falling to it how will you even process being in the play uh, play in tournament as a fan of a franchise that has a ton of storied success? Is it like some level of like sheepishness or is it the one game wild card scenario like in baseball? Uh, I think if this were instituted in a normal year, I would, you know, shame is a strong word and not necessarily embarrassing, but disappointing and a little sheepish, I guess, just because. You know, for a team like the Celtics, I went to the Eastern Conference Finals last year. The expectations are supposed to be above the seventh or eighth seed in the, you know, in the in the conference. But this season, I mean, they've jamming all these games together. Guys are getting hurt because they're jamming the games together. And then you have dudes missing time because of COVID coming back, dealing with those after effects. Tatum still has to use an inhaler. Evan Fournier said last night that he like the lights bother his eyes and he he feels like he has a concussion after he got back from COVID, which obviously explains why he can't shoot the ball very well if he can't see. And so all that together means that if we're in the play-in game as like a historic, uh, historic franchise with a lot of success, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I feel like we're above it. I think anybody saying that is ridiculous. I saw Jay Adonde tweet yesterday that people, you know, they might have to change things if the Celtics or the Lakers end up in the play-in and then lose games and are out of the playoffs because of how big of a market share they have for the NBA and how much money they bring in. 
And I can see that, but I mean, at the same time, this is what the NBA wants. If the Celtics or the Lakers end up tumbling out of the play-in game, that's exactly the kind of Cinderella story that this is designed to create. But ultimately, I the only as a fan, the main reason I want to avoid the playing game is because your absolute best case scenario, if you're in the playing game, is that you play the second seed in the conference. And so for the Celtics, that's going to be either the Nets or the Sixers, which would be bad. There's a chance the Bucks catch up, but you know maybe you catch the Nets unaware, or you know the Sixers have had their historic troubles with the Celtics in the playoffs in the past. And you know there are different ways I could talk myself into this, but. Ultimately, the difference between the play-in tournament and the sixth seed is pretty substantial in both conferences. Not super substantial because sitting at the three seed today is the Bucks with reigning and two-time MVP Giannis Antetokounmpo. And then in the West, it's the Nuggets with presumptive MVP Nikola Jokic. So that's who they would play if they ended up squeaking past the play-in tournament. I just, I don't know. I, a lot of people are slamming the play-in tournament. I just don't think it matters that much. I don't think it's going to end up with a team that shouldn't be in the playoffs in the playoffs. Maybe it does, but I, I doubt it. And I think it does create an extra layer of drama. It just kind of sucks watching your team like be on that balance because it's like you're basically you're fighting you know a sub-500 team for a playoff spot in a do-or-die game for a team with two superstars or two stars, however you want to define them, that feels in like Kemba Walker, Marcus Smart, that feels like really, you know, underachieving quite significantly, even with all the circumstances I previously listed. You make such a salient point about if there was ever a year that was going to convince the NBA to keep the play-in tournament, this is the one. Like if they had gone to a big whiteboard and sketched out exactly the sequences that would need to take place in order for all these marquee attractive teams to fall or be in fear of falling. Like this is not going to convince them that they need to change the rules. This is going to be like, Hey, what more can we do? Can we make full entry to the playoffs even more exclusive? And you want to know what, I don't know if that makes for a worse product as a Celtics fan, as a heat fan, as a Lakers fan, and to some level as a nuggets fan, like, you can't be too upset about what has happened the year after last year. We're going to look back in history and say there was the pandemic year and then there was the year after because that is the hangover season. And that is the manifestation of the unprecedented events and effort that it was taken to get sports to the finish line in 2020. We are paying for that on the back end. Uh, it's basically like they're playing a different sport with the short, with the shortened off season and with all the emotional uh, capital that they expended getting to that point last year. So I think five, 10 years down the road, we're going to look back at the year that followed the year as equally weird to the 2020 season. No, 100%. There's a through line to be drawn with big star injuries this year and whoever lasted as long as they did. The Lakers, obviously, LeBron and AD both missed time with kind of like bang-up injuries that might not have happened if they had a full offseason. The Heat were hurt for most of the beginning of the year, and I think had some COVID breakouts. Everybody had COVID breakouts, but had some issues there. And then you take it down a notch, and it's the Celtics, and they've been banged up all season for a variety of reasons. And then there's the Nuggets, who lost Jamal Murray, even if they've been by and large healthy for most of the year. And then even at, before that, you have the Bucks, who lost to the Heat in the second round of the bubble playoffs. Giannis Antetokounmpo missed time. You have the Raptors, who have been terrible for strange reasons, but 
at least partially due to injury. Fred Van Fleet missed a lot of the season due to a foot injury. And then you have on the other side, you have the Clippers. Obviously, Kawhi Leonard is going to miss time, but he had foot soreness problems that caused him to miss a couple of games, which is different from his knee issues that caused him to load manage. Paul George has a lingering foot issue that's going to follow him into the playoffs. And then the Rockets imploded for reasons unrelated to anything that I just said. But Eric Gordon was on that team, and he's also hurt. So, I mean, for me personally, it's gotten to the point where regardless of what happens in the playoffs, we make the play in and we end up getting stomped by the Nets or we somehow make a run as like a six or a five seed because the standings are that slim in the middle. Anything can happen in the next week and a half. I'm just going to hopefully come out of this thankful that none, nobody got serious here. That's what I was thinking when I realized that the offseason was only going to be two and a half months long for all the non-finals teams. And like even in the bubble, I was really worried about it because if a you know, dude tears his ACL in the bubble or whatever, then he's out for not only the bubble playoffs, but he's also out most of, if not all of this season. So I think that's going to be the biggest takeaway, especially for like the Lakers might feel differently because they have a 36-year-old LeBron James. But for everybody else who has young stars, regardless of what happens, hopefully we emerge from it. They're just thankful that a two-month offseason followed by a condensed 72-game schedule didn't permanently ruin the careers of a lot of guys because it very easily could have and still might for all I know, God forbid. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.